Welcome to the Arise Church Podcast. At Arise, we're a community of imperfect people pursuing and experiencing a transformative relationship with Jesus and one another. For more information, you can find us online at ariseonline.org. Thanks for listening. Today's word is being read from Ecclesiastes 9, 1 through 16. But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know, both are before him. It is the same for all, since the same events happened to the righteous and to the wicked, to the good and to the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner. And he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live, and after that they go to the dead. But he who is joined with all the living has hope, for a living dog is better than a dead lion." For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing, and they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished, and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. Go, eat your bread with joy, and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun, because that is your portion of life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might, for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. Again, I saw that under the sun the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. For man does not know his time, like fish that are taken in an evil net, and like birds that are caught in a snare. So the children of man are snared at an evil time, when it suddenly falls upon them. I have also seen this example of wisdom under the sun, and it seems great to me. There was a little city with few men in it, and a great king came against and besieged it, building great siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor wise man, and he by his wisdom delivered the city, yet no one remembered that poor man. But I say that wisdom is better than might, though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. The word of the Lord. Thank you for that this morning. Uh, We are quickly approaching our end of Ecclesiastes because I don't think we could take much more of this. We will soon be getting to a new series, uh, I promise you, but until that time, there's still still meat left on the bone of Ecclesiastes. Uh, And today, we were talking about uh, the issue of justice and death. 
Justice and death is what we're coming to today. Our series has shown us so far. We've, we've tackled a bunch. We've tackled toil. We've tackled uh, work. Don't worry, the lights are coming on for a reason. Again, I like seeing your faces. Um, we've, tackled, we've tackled work. We've tackled pleasure. We've tackled what it has meaning in the world, if not for God. We've addressed these issues, and today we come to justice and death. Now, before this, I don't think anybody could have refuted what we've talked about work, that work needs to be good, needs to be fulfilling, needs to be for something that builds in the community. That, that doesn't seem all too outlandish. Uh, pleasure. We've talked about how pleasure is a good thing, that actually outside of Christ, you have a problem with pleasure. Because if there is no God, then where in the world does pleasure come from? Where does meaning come from? How can you say something is good? Today, we're going to talk about justice. Now, if I gathered a, a town hall meeting and I said, we need justice in this world, very few of us would stand up and say, how dare you say such a thing? How dare you, you silly, silly man? Justice doesn't need to be here. Uh, we all know injustice is an evil thing. Now, the definitions we give for justice, ah, that, that might be a source we're going to tackle today. But nobody would say, actually, there are probably two people who would, who would stop me when I said uh, justice and, and would make a point. Uh, and if you were a philosophy major in college, I apologize. But from the ages of 19 to 21, philosophy majors should just be seen and not heard. Um, I was a philosophy minor in, in college for the first two years. And then Haley, my now wife, that time girlfriend said, drop it now or we're done. And so I said, okay, we're done. Uh, no, I didn't. I said, philosophy is gone. Um, no one would say that injustice is a bad thing. It's just the definition of what that is. That's really the key. And today, I hope to bring this to your attention. I hope you leave with this understanding. Justice in life is only found when you are at peace with death. Justice in life is only found when you are at peace with death. We'll flesh that out a little bit more. But essentially what I want you leave, leaving here knowing is this, if you, if you fear death, if you don't know how to answer death, if death is the boogeyman waiting at your door, if you watch a movie about, uh, about some nefarious ghost who's going to come after your phone and, and is always seeking after you and haunts you and you're scared of that continually and always and you don't have an answer for death, you can't be at peace in life and you can't find justice. Essentially, what I want you leave, leaving here knowing is this. War wages on unless one side is defeated. You will always be in war with death unless you or death lose. Pretty simple concept. You can't have peace if there's bullets flying in a war-torn country. That's not peace. Your life cannot have peace unless you know what to do with death, and justice comes from that. So we have a town hall, and we say justice is good, injustice is bad, and everybody would say, yes, of course. Little children dying in the streets of hunger, malnourishment, uh, disease, this is, all, this is bad, and we need to eradicate this. We need to get this off the face of the planet. Um, we, we all know that. We all feel that. Nobody would, would shy away from that. But the problem that I see in life is, although we can, we can intellectually know, we can even experientially know, some of you have dealt with injustice on a scale that I will never know. Some of you have dealt with death on a scale that I will never know. 
Some of you have experienced it very painfully, very personally in your life. Maybe you have had injustice come to you because of the ethnicity in which you have, or maybe because of the traditions you come from, or maybe the area of town that you are, are from. Those are, those are minor, minor on the scale of worldwide epidemics where tyrants are real and countries war against other countries and slaughter people based upon silly, silly metrics that they deem necessary. So I first wanna say, many of you have experienced injustice on a scale I never will. And yet, I can say full-heartedly that every single one of us has not experienced the best life. We haven't. Let me just, let me just, if you think that, uh, who loves their body completely perfectly? No one raises their hand, right? Everybody says, no, I could, I could probably stand to lose five, 10 pounds here. I could probably tone up. I probably need to jog. My lungs need help. How many of us like our intellect? We think we're just the, the, the penultimate version of ourselves that we're so intellectual, so knowledgeable. And we say, yes, look at me. I clearly am the best of us. Nobody would. And yet, do you... Do you know that we are called into a life in Christ that says, find joy in the heaven that you have now in the actualized kingdom that is here? And we go, what? If we say we have the best of life now, I have a bone to pick with God because this is not cutting it. I need to be 6'5 and run like a gazelle and be able to catch touchdown passes like it's no big thing, you know? And I'm not. We all know the taste of the good life, but we we haven't captured it. And if you think you've captured it, hopefully by the end of the day, you realize you haven't. And it's the injustices of the world. It's the, it's the problem of death in our world that we come up against and fight. I'm gonna try to give you three examples to try to prove this point further. I'm trying to elicit a problem in your life. One of the aspects we talked early on in Ecclesiastes is, Ecclesiastes is very difficult because you're staring down, you're staring down a very difficult book and you're having the audacity to investigate your life. And that's not for everybody. The analogy I gave early on in the series is at 45, you changing careers and quitting every single ladder rung that you have gone up in your career to only become bottom of a new business and working your way up at age 45 when you have a mortgage and college to save for and retirement to get after. It takes somebody maybe a little crazy but certainly with audacity to look at their life and say, maybe I've done it all wrong. So I'm hopefully creating a problem that actually the fact that injustice survives in this world is our problem. That as the church, we have a mission that is to fight injustice in the world, albeit with the gospel, not, not with social programs that we enact on human level, but rather with the gospel. The gospel defeats death and therefore defeats injustice. So I'm gonna create a couple problems for you. I'm gonna use three examples. Now, if you're an artist in the room, I don't mean this next statement as belittling. I mean it as encouraging. The, when, when, we, when we come against problems of this world or we come up against things that we don't know how to put words to, artists, creatives are really good at observing things. They're not very good at giving answers, but they're really good at observing things. Again, I don't mean that belittling. I mean that as exemplary. We need to observe things as artists do. Uh, the first example I'm going to give you is Emily Dickinson. In her famous poem, Because I Could Not Stop From Death, Emily Dickinson goes off on this very, very beautiful, articulate way of saying, 
I couldn't wait for death. I, I wasn't doing it, so he waited for me. And in this poem, she has this allure of death. It's romantic to her in some weird way. And she says, he kindly stopped for me, and then they go on a path, and she says, oh, death, I, I was promised the sky. I was promised the Rockies. I was promised. She, she has this religious bent in all of her writing. Later on in life, Emily Dickinson will say, I'm one of the bad ones. I don't deserve heaven. But she, oh, all her writing, all of her writing says, has this, this, this ring of kingdom come mentality. So she says, I was promised a castle in the sky. And death took her on a tour of her life and she got to all the points of it. And she said, oh, look, here's, here's my childhood. How great is this? I'm laughing, I'm enjoying. And then she gets later on in life and, and death brings her about to the castle, her home that she's to reside in. And it's nothing more than a molehill. Whereas before she looks up and she says, look at my life, there must be a castle waiting for me. And she looks up and she has to put her gaze down and it's nothing more than a roof on top of the soil. And she says, where's my castle? Where was the thing I was promised in, in death? Where's the good life? Where's all my work, all the things I've done? It has to amount to something as a reward. And she gets down exactly what Ecclesiastes says. The good and the bad, the old and the young, those who take oaths and those who don't, those religious and non-religious, they all have the same fate, death. And she's undone by it. She doesn't know what to do with it. She says at the end of it, since then, to centuries and yet feel shorter than the day, I first surmised the horse's head where toward eternity lay. What she's saying is this, I thought I was promised the pie in the sky dream that kingdom at the end of my life I would be rewarded. By the way, how many of us believe that as Christians? We have the gospel inverted that we think we live a good life and at the end we'll be rewarded. You got it wrong. You're rewarded now and you get to live in eternity. And she believed, at the end, I'll have the pie in the sky. And she realizes, I'm just next to a horse's head. I'm just soil. The second example, not only is Emily Dickinson good at this, the second one is from Les Mis. Now, first of all, if you haven't seen Les Mis, you're dead inside. You're just, and if, don't come at me like it's a musical and whatever. If you haven't seen Les Mis, stop this afternoon. Go see it. It's incredible. It's this story of the French Revolution, it's a story of, of those who have not and those who have, and the, the despondency of life. Emily Dickinson comes at it from a romantic side of life. Les Mis comes at it from a despondent point of life. And what I count as one of the best two minutes and 40 seconds in cinematic history is Anne Hathaway's character. It's based upon a book. It's not new. Anne Hathaway's character, uh, she says this. She says, I was young and unafraid. I'll, I'll put some context to this, this in a moment. She says, I was young and unafraid. Dreams were made and used, and dreams were made and used and wasted. There was no ransom to be paid, no song unsung, no wine untasted. What she's saying is this. Anne Hathaway's character grew up in a time and a place where she says, the world is my oyster. Carpe diem, seize the day. Go make the world that you want of it. You can live your best life today. And it's lies. Because she was a good person. She had a child. She wanted to, uh, to take care of this child. So she has to go be a street knight, lady of the night. And in being a lady of the night, she realizes, I have to send money to care for my child of somebody else who's, who has her in their house. I, I thought 
I thought everything was going to come good to me. I had a job in a factory. I was working really hard, and somebody took that from me, and now I'm a lady of the night, and I have, I have diseases. I'm going to die. My beauty is gone. My freedom is gone. My child is gone. And she says, I was told, uh, I grew up in an era of G.I. Joe, and I, I use that to say this. How many of us grew up in an era where this was the phrase, be anything you want to be? And you go, what? G.I. Joe lied to me. I can't be anything I want to be because I want to be several things and I try and I, it's outside of my control. The good, the bad, the ugly, they all die young or they die at some point. Those who are religious, not religious, it doesn't matter. Anne Hathaway's character in this movie understands, I was told when I was a child that I had, the world was my oyster, carpe diem, seize the day, let's go out and get it. I was young and unafraid, no ransom to be paid. Ah, life is good when you're naive. And then she says this, oh, but the tigers come at night, their voices soft as thunder, as they tear your hope apart and they turn your dreams to shame. But there are dreams that cannot be and there are storms that we cannot weather. I had a dream my life would be so different from this hell I'm living. So different now than from what it seems. Now life has killed the dream I dreamed. This is the despondent view. First of the romantic view. I get good at life because I'm good. Then comes the despondent view. I've tasted life and it is awful. Maybe you're in one of those two camps. Or maybe you're in the camp that says, no, life is great. You're crazy. It's fantastic. I'm, leaving my, I'm living my best life now. Okay. Cohen Brothers. I've used them several times. If you haven't found out, I'm a Cohen Brothers fan because I'm twisted inside. We're, again, we're preaching on Ecclesiastes first. Who does that? There's this movie uh, the Cohen Brothers have. It's called No Country for Old Men. In it, these drug dealers lose a load of their product and somebody else finds it and tries to go sell it. And in trying to sell it, the, the dealers send after an assassin, a hitman. And they come after this, this man to get it down. And the assassin follows him and follows him, finally gets him on the phone and says, just to let you know, I will end you, and not only you, but your wife as well. And you're hoping, you're pulling for this guy who stole, it's really weird what the Cohen brothers do. You're pulling for the guy who stole drugs to make it out from the assassin. It's the weirdest thing in the entire world. You find yourself rooting for him. And at the end, the assassin wins and gets his mark. And then, but he's, he's, he's wounded from the whole ordeal. And so he kind of walks off and you're like, okay, good. You know, at least the guy who stole drugs is done and the assassin gets to leave and this is fine, this is great. And then there's a, a quick monologue on the meaning of life and then all of a sudden, the screen goes black and it comes back on and the assassin is sitting in a house and in walks a woman, and she opens the door, and she looks at this man, and he just looks at her. And you say to yourself, oh, no. Don't do it. T talk your way out of it. And he says, I made a promise, and I'm going to make sure it happens. And he ends the wife. And then the movie ends by him walking out the door down the street, and it goes to black, and credits roll. And we say, wait. <laughs> Where are the guys in the white hats? Where's the cavalry? Where's those who are going to fight injustice? This is wrong. This is bad. If you think that, you know that this life is not all that it was meant to be because that type of injustice happens on a daily basis. Conversely, if you say, well, yeah, que sera, what will be, what will be, that's depressing. 
No one can live that life for long. Ask anybody who's a philosophy major who graduates college and has this nihilistic point of view that the world is just whatever it will be and we need to conquer and rise above. Ask them how they live and if anybody else likes being their friend. The answer is no. See, what we need to realize today, the romantic view, the despondent view, and the ugly view is this. We know what life should be. We know what life is, and lastly, a clue. We know what life should be. We know what life is, and a clue. And we get this from Ecclesiastes. See, the author wants us to know that life is meaningless. It's toil, it's vanity upon vanity, he says. Just, just puffs of the wind, dirt that comes and goes. But he says this. It's very interesting what he says in the middle of it. Verses 7 through 10, he says, you should enjoy life. I hope that your head is always anointed with oil and that your linens are pure white and you enjoy the life that you have for life. And even all that you do, whatever your hand goes towards, do it with all might. And in the middle of, of a very, very pessimistic view of life, this happened, you go, wait, what is this? What, what is happening here? See, the author knows and we know. We know that we know that we know what life should be. How do we know it? We know it in the marrow of our bones. We know that when we listen to a piece of music that moves us and we say, yes, the chemicals are going off in my brain to say this is good, but why in the world am I moved? Am I compelled down to a soul level? There's this new show on TV called Evil. And uh, in it, there's, a, there's somebody who's training to be a priest and a psychologist. And they take cases of those who say, the devil made me do it. I'm, I'm a murderer, and, but it's not my fault. The devil made me do it. And they're both trying to prove, is this demonic possession or is this psychosis? And in it, in the middle of it, the, the priest asks the psychologist, he says, do you really live in a world in which you don't believe there's mysteries anymore? And she kind of answers it a little bit. And, and she says, and he says, well, what, what more is there to life, essentially? Do you, do you think life is good or it's all can be explained away materialistically? And she gives a very faint answer to it. And then at the end of it, she comes back and she says, I don't know. I, I don't know. See, what he's saying here, the, the anoint your head with oil and the white linens and enjoy the life and break bread and toil and do hard work and enjoy it. The author knows this because he knows beyond a shadow of a doubt. I know that I know that I know in the, the marrow of my bones, life ought be good that when I pick up my daughter and I throw her in the air and she giggles like a giggle I've never heard before and it does something to my insides I can't explain. Or I can explain it by chemical dependency upon a good reaction that I keep this thing alive because it brings me joy, at which, again, no one wants to be your friend. <laughs> or that I know... <laughs> I know when I have a good conversation with friends that warms my soul. I know when I watch, I look at art and I go, I don't know why I can't stop looking at this. See, what he's saying is, even in the desert, he uses the, the analogy of oil and linens and, and spouses and bread. He says, even though you're in the desert, even though you live in a, in a climate that's not conducive to life, I pray that you always find moisture. You're always replenished. I pray that your linens are clean and fresh and you're reflecting the beat down of the sun, that you're not undone by it. I pray that even in your relationships, they're life-giving. How can he say that? How can he say, enjoy life in the midst of a pessimistic attitude? This is why. 
I don't have to try to prove God. All I have to show you is I say, what's, what's the most enjoyable part of life to you? And then I ask you this, why do you deserve that? What's the most enjoyable part of life to you? You say, oh man, the best is when I was walking down Paris and I was just eating good food and enjoying good culture with my spouse and it was the best week of my life. And I say, why? It better not be because of a chemical reaction in your brain because you didn't enjoy it. Actually, you were forced to think you like it in that case, which is not enjoyment. See, only in Christ, only in God can we actually enjoy life and know what it tastes like because of this. You and I were not built for this world. We were not made for this world we currently reside in. It's like asking a fish to breathe outside of water. They weren't made for it. What's the most loving thing you could do to a fish that's flopping on the ground? Well, besides picking it up and grilling it. But if you didn't want that, you would pick it up and you'd put it back in water, exactly. Why? Because you know that was the life they were made for. How do we know that life was supposed to be something more, as Anne Hathaway puts it, that her character in Lame is, that, that this world, the tigers come at night and tear my hopes apart? How does she even know that the hopes are good? Because she's fighting. The toil against this world necessitates our acknowledgement that this is not good. We have to fight. If it wasn't toiling, you know what we could save it? This is good. This is great. Death has been our enemy since the day that our federal headship in Adam took away life. Death has been the enemy. The good, the bad die young, the old die. There is no, when everybody says, somebody says, well, they died too young. Any death is dying too young because we were built for eternity and we have temporal existence today. The author tells us, you know what life ought be. Lastly, I'll just say this. You know, a, a famous phrase we all use and many of our friends who aren't in Christ use, uh, it's the, gosh, I hate, I feel like such a moron when I say these sorts of things because I fear that I'm not going to be able to say it appropriately. I don't internet well at all. So I uh, hashtag blessed. You know, I feel so stupid saying that. But when people say, ah, blessed life, you know what blessing means? It means a gift given to you that was undeserved. If your life is a blessing, it must have come from a gift giver. And if there's no gift giver, you know what your, le your life is? Not a blessing. And actually, you know what it means? If it's not a gift, I can take whatever I want because it's not yours to have. It's mine if I want to go get it. Do you see? Life needs to be a gift, and it is a gift. There has to be a gift giver. Because without a gift giver, all we can do is simply say what life is. Now, since life is not walking around at the cool of the day, sipping on wine or whatever your drink of choice is with loved ones down by the river, that's not flooded. The author says this. He says, that's not life. Instead, life is a race that's not meant for the swift. It's a, it's a race that the strong can't do, as he says, uh, verses, verses 2 through 6 and 11 through 12. He says, life is not good. And actually, I could just show you, what, what is life? It's a toil, it's a fight, it's a, it's a striving after. The swift, the hardworking don't, don't get the best jobs. 
the, the purest of heart aren't staved off from cancer. Those who, who are religious die young, are in a lack of economic value in their life. Essentially, it's this. Doing good things does not ever promise you good life. Actually, as Christ says, it's the exact opposite. We'll get to in a second the clue. He says, they hated me. What do, they think, what do you think they're going to do to you? If you think being a Christian gets you good things in life, you were lied to. Christianity is good because God is good, and he is the defeater of death, and therefore we can live at peace. But that's not our life. Our life is toil and striving. I get asked all the time as a pastor. When people find out I'm a pastor, they ask me this one question. It's within the first five questions people ask me, this is one of them. And they always ask me, they say, do you think life is just getting worse and worse? Do you think the world is just going to the, the phrase hell in a handbasket? And I give a response that's really lacking for most people. They hate my response. So I'll give it to you now so you can all hate it together. And you don't have to ask me one of the five questions. They say, you know, is life getting worse? And I say, life's always been bad. It's always been the same. There's nothing new under the sun. We're progressing towards something, the kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're getting to there. But until that point, it's not getting worse. It's just the same old, same old. You know how I know? Read the prophets. God's people having fornication parties in the temple. Read the history of Israel. God's kings killing at their own behest so that they can get their best friend's wife. How do I know it's always been the same? Look at human history. Look at your heart. I don't need, it's not getting worse. It's always been bad. <laughs> Ever since Adam and Eve were, were evicted from the garden, it's been the same. No, the reason why it's been bad, the reason why I give such a lacking answer to people and I say it's always been bad is because of this. The enemy of this world has not finally been defeated and that enemy of the world is death. Death has a sting to those outside of Christ. Uh, if, we were, if Sioux Falls, uh, for whatever reason, went to war against Rapid City, and we just said, hey, there, has to be, <laughs> there can only be one city in, in South Dakota. <laughs> um, let's go to war. I know there's other cities in South Dakota. I get that. That wasn't a dig at you who live an hour and 15 minutes away from, yeah. South, <laughs> from Sioux Falls and come in, which, by the way, is all of you, I'm discovering. <laughs> Every time I meet somebody, where are you from? Oh, a little town, hour and 15 minutes away. Where are all these places? We have a common enemy, and that is death. It's like we went to war, and if we were at war, actively in battle, bullets flying, the sirens not going off for tornadoes, but the sirens going off for bomb warnings, and you were to take your family and go for a walk down the street at sunset, what would people think of you? They would think, you're crazy. We're at war, don't you realize? Get in the house, protect yourself. Do you know why people don't enjoy life? Their enemy is not defeated. Death is still at the door. Tigers still at come at night for them. The final sting that everybody universally experiences, doesn't matter if you're good, you're bad, you're young, you're old, you're healthy, you jog every day. There's a, uh, a documentary. It's one of the most fantastic documentaries I've seen. It's about this 90-year-old man who smoked a pack of cigarettes, drank two pints of beer minimum, and had bacon his whole entire life, and he's still kicking at 90. 
compare that to somebody who jogs every single day and, and eats blueberries exclusively. <laughs> and they die at 41 from a heart attack. See, what the Bible tells us is this. Your problem your fundamental problem is that you are, you are at war with the system that you live in. Death is not defeated in your life. The only way to enjoy life, the only way that Ecclesiastes say, eat, drink, be merry, the only way that Corinthians tells us, that Paul tells us later, that Jesus says, whatever you do, do so with joy. Whether you eat or drink, do so in the name of God. The only way you can do that is if death is defeated in your life and there's no more sting to it. The only reason we could look at infants dying in the street of war-torn countries, of tyrants killing people and say, this is not right, but it'll be rectified, if we believe that there's a hope that their death is defeated. Otherwise, we're undone by it. Although, as I ask you, what are you doing to stop child hunger in different continents? And you say to yourself, well, that's not really helping people. I, I can't do that. I'm just one person. You're hiding from the fact that injustices are all around us. You're hiding from the fact that death is real and it's an enemy of this world. And you, we'll get to the clue in a second, you as somebody whose death cannot touch, do you get that? In Christ, death can't touch you. The thing that's universally of the human experience, to live, or as the phrase goes, to err is to human, I, to be human is to die. That's human existence. That's the only thing we all share. To be human is to die. Because can I promise that people will experience joy in life? I can't. Can I promise you that you'll have a spouse? I can't. Can I promise you that you won't die of a horrible disease? I can't. Can I promise you'll die? I can. To be human is to die. The list that he gives. Now, now, where am I going with this? The list he gives, he says, clean and unclean. Those who take oaths and those who don't take oaths, they're all the same. Notice something really quick. In all this conversation, the one thing that I haven't talked about yet, the universal experience of death, is I haven't talked about if it's good or bad. Do you notice that? You and I talk about children dying in the streets and we say, that's bad. Boo. When you do something. The writer of Ecclesiastes says, they just die. If everything you have is under the sun and there is no God, all you can say of a child dying of a horrible disease in the streets is they're dead. Let me put it this way. Let me make it personal. There are some of us in this congregation that if we lived in a view that there is no life outside of Christ or, or, or there's only life in, under the sun, that there is no God, there are some of us in this congregation that materialistically speaking, we are a drain on society. I don't believe this, but let me go down this. Let me take it to its nth degree. If all we have is material world, you know who really is a drain on, on the material world, on our time, our energy, our money? Elderly, disabled. It's like looking at somebody who doesn't have their their act together, their body, their mind, their faculties all together, their emotional ability. They're not an addition to society. They're a subtraction. And we look at them and we say, well, you're a drain. Uh, my son's not here. I, I have to give him a dollar every time I use him in an example in a sermon. But he's not here, and none of you will tell him. So uh, 
my son has spina bifida. If all we have is under the sun, he's a drain on society. That's, that's the writer of Ecclesiastes. That's the Cohen brothers. Just, he's, he's a drain. If I believed that, could he find joy in anything? Could I find joy in anything? Can you find joy in anything? Because all of a sudden, then what happens is I say, well, are you at peak performance? Is your job, do you do it 100% or do you take a couple minutes off because then you're a drain on society, then I'm wasting money on you? See, the second we say, the second we say you have to live perfectly, find joy in life, and there is no judge over us to declare what is good, we define what's good. And we will say to everybody in this room, if you're a drain on society, then your death is just death. Those children dying in the streets because of hunger, well, que sera, sera. It's better that they die because then we don't have to give food to them. Do you see? No, we can't live like that. We have a common enemy, and that enemy is death. And without that, without that fact, without that knowledge, all we can do is observe death, observe injustices, and we can't do anything about it. I referenced earlier the example of the white hats and the black hats. The, the writer of Ecclesiastes is incredibly current in his understanding. He is, he is very, very contextualized. It's funny how the Bible does that, right? How it has no time or <laughs> constraints. It's effective for everything we do. Uh, about when the time that I, was, that I was becoming, I was starting to adult well in life, uh, there was a change in movies. It used to, now this was before my, my father loves John Wayne movies. It's really easy to love a John Wayne movie. You know why? You find John Wayne, you find his people. He's good, they're bad. You defeat them, we're good. We'll go home. Right off into the sunset. There's a new movie coming out, and it's, uh, it, all the movies that are coming out are anti-heroes, are they not? It's the Joker. Let's learn his backstory. Let's learn what made him tick. Let's learn what went wrong in his life, how he was abused as a child, or how he was neglected, or how he didn't have all the good things. Let's learn this so we can explain why he's so bad. There's no white hats and black hats anymore. There's gray hats, right? There's always been gray hats. Don't believe the lie of, of current reality that says, oh, we're just all trying to figure out life together and there's no, there's good, there's, there's no good, there's no bad. That's always been the way of life. You know how I know? The final verse of Judges. You know what it says? Man did what was right in his own eyes. It's always been. We must know and understand that your enemy of death and my enemy of death is the only barrier to injustice in this world. And once we defeat death, once we come to peace, once we defeat the enemy at the gate, the tiger can't claw us anymore. You know what we can do to a tiger? Tiger's declawed. Tiger has no fangs. Tiger can't kill you. You know what we can do to the tiger? I can interact with it. I can pet it. I can walk it. I could keep it in my house. You can't interact with life well unless its fangs have been taken out, unless its claws are taken out, unless its sting is no longer effective to you. Uh, every time I watch a news article that says, lion tamer eaten by lion, you know my first reaction? That sounds right. I don't feel bad for the lion tamer. You're in a cage with a lion. 
That's, all, that's a you problem, not a me problem. The only way to get inside the cage of life is to realize death has no more sting on you, and therefore you can taste the kingdom come now. You can enjoy a child being thrown up in the air and giggling. You can enjoy a walk with your spouse. You can enjoy a date night. Why? Because death doesn't have anything over you. But if the tiger has claws and the tiger has fangs, you know what you'll always do? You'll always be looking over your shoulder. You'll always be trying to run fast enough to outrun death. Let me tell you, death wins. 100% of the time. Unless, lastly, the clue. It says in verses 13 through 18, it says that there was this poor wise man who was part of a small city and this giant king came and besieged it. And the wisdom of the poor man saved the city. And then you know what the city did to him? They forgot him. Now this word forgotten, all the commentators that I read, the, the really bright scholarly people who are in university settings all day long. This understanding of he, the city was about to be overthrown and he protected it and then they despised him. This word despised is akin to going back and and pulling down all the statues of erasing his name from the record books, of hating him so much that you're foaming at the mouth. It says this small city despised him to the point of hate, to the point of forgetting it. A little background, Ah, very quickly. All the Bible points to Christ I have a game for you. Open up your Bible, look to it. If you can't point to Christ in it, it's just good information. You must be able to point to Christ in every single thing you do. Now with that, I'm gonna do a whole sermon on this later, I promise you. With that, we can't go boogeyman hunting for Jesus in the Bible. Uh, The famous example is there's a crimson cord. There's an example of uh, a woman putting down a crimson cord to spies of Israel to hide them. And people are like, oh look, Look, Old Testament, crimson cord, it's red. That's, that's Christ being the bridge between salvation and, and death. Not exactly. There's clues. There's shadows. This is one of those shadows. It says there's a poor man. And this word poor man says nothing that, as the New Testament says, nothing that we would look at and find great and glorious. What... What good can come out of South Dakota? Is what the Bible says, just in Jesus' term. What, what good can come out from a village an hour and 15 minutes away from metropolitan area? It says this poor man saved a city and the city hated him. Ladies and gentlemen, we have a clue here. This clue is this. The only way to defeat death, the only way to take the sting out of death, the only way is to disarm the enemy. That's the only way. You can't cuddle with a tiger in your house, it will kill you. You must defeat it. You must, put, you must put death to death, as it were. And this is a clue. It says there was a poor man who was despised for his act of saving a city. Remind you of anybody? See, the clue is this. You will always fight death until death is gone. And if you try to fight death on your own, what will happen to you? What will happen to you? You will die. Go to those in this, in this community that understand and work with those in the health profession. Those of us who, who, he's right there, so I'll talk about him. Who has a job in which you take care of sick kids that are on hospice. You tell me life is joyful. 
that it's our oyster. It can't be. How's the only way you could look at your family and say, it's gonna, everything's going to be all right, as the famous theologian sung. Every little thing is going to be all right. How do you know that? How can you say that? By the way, he wasn't a famous theologian. That was a joke. <laughs> Death needs defeated. And the clue we have here is there needs to be somebody wise, somebody who's not great on their own, but comes from someone greater to die so that you can live. If you're outside of Christ today and you don't understand that death needs to be defeated for you to enjoy life, I encourage you, find the one who took on death and is the only one in all of history that says, death, where is your sting? Oh, death, bring it. Because if anybody in this room says, death, bring it, I will defeat you, I will fight you, you're either a 16-year-old male, (laughs) you haven't lived life, You're sheltered and you're isolated, but if you've gone out in the world and you've seen the injustice and you say, I can't defeat death, I need somebody else stronger than me, bigger than me, who can defeat death? Ah. The clue that was given in the Old Testament, you need somebody to fight for you, is realized in the New Testament in Jesus Christ. Why did we kill Jesus? I wish I had, okay, we're going to do this sermon again later, I promise you. Why did we defeat Jesus? Why in Superman did we try to put Superman to death in the movie? If I told you there's a being that you can't ever conquer that's bigger than you, more knowledgeable than you, all-powerful, all-knowing, and all-eternal, you can't do anything against it. That does one of two things. That either terrifies you or it calms you. If it terrifies you, you know what you'll try to do? Kill him, which is what Rome did which is what the Pharisees did. You're upsetting my ecosystem. You're telling me as a religious person, I am bad. How dare you? I will put you to death. And Jesus said, go for it. Because I'll defeat death on your behalf as well. Stop trying to conquer death and let the one who conquered it for you be your only salvation. Because then you live at peace. Then you get to say, like everyone else, I have all eternity smiling on me. I don't care what you say about me. I have all eternity smiling on me. I am good with the Father. I will live forever in perfect paradise. Okay, cancer, you're a bugger, and I hate you. I hate you. But you're not going to undo me. Because I have everything. Many of you live a life that I haven't experienced. If you have suffered the death of a child, the only way you get over that is not to say, Eh, it's just material, is to say, I have somebody who has defeated death on behalf of that child on behalf of me, and I will never taste it again if I am in him. So my question to you today is very simple. Who fights your death? Who fights your death? If it's you, you lose. You'll return to the ground from which you came. Instead, And secondly, it's not a promise of new life. It is new life. Do you get this? If somebody says, don't worry, trust me, uh, every single financial advisor says, give me your money, trust me, I'll give you a return, right? And you go, okay, what kind of promise can you make me? If they're audacious, you know what they'll say? I can't. If you have a God that can't promise you life because he's already given it to you, it's not a God. If you can't promise me your salvation, not because of what you've done, but because of what somebody else has done, it's not salvation, but rather a good hope. It's hallmark faith. It's a hope and a prayer. 
living on a prayer. Are you kidding me? No, 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 no. The only way you could live at peace with all of the world is if you know this one thing and this one thing only. My life is tied up in Christ and he died the death I should have died and now lives the life that I get to live in him. My question to you is this, is your life guaranteed? If it's not, you don't have life. You're just trying to outrun the tiger at your door. But rather, if Christ has already guaranteed your life, that he's perfected it, he's attained it, and he's given it to you, and it's wrapped up with him, you know what God says of you? He says the same thing of you as he says of his son. This is my son with whom I'm well pleased. He, he smiles that favor on you. Let's pray. Father, today may we not be a death fearer, but a life liver because your son died the death we should have died and lives the life that we now get to. That your kingdom come, your will be done. We are beginning to taste right now. And so, Father, I pray that as the writer of Ecclesiastes says, we know what life ought be. We know what life is. And rather, we're given a clue. Somebody else has to defeat the tiger at the gate. And that's exactly what your son did. That it's not based upon my merit, but based upon his merit. And his merit is good. So, Father, may today we realize that more. May we celebrate and worship more your son who perfected everything and conquered death. Son's holy and precious name I pray, amen.